Section 6 of Prolegomena to Any Future Metaphysics. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Farnud Jahangiri. Prolegomena to Any Future Metaphysics by Immanuel Kant. Translated Paul Paul Carroll's. Section 6. Third part of the Transcendental Problem. Number 40 to 49. How is metaphysics in general possible? 40. Pure mathematics and pure science of nature had no occasion for such a deduction as we have made of both for their own safety and certainty. For the former rests upon its own evidence, and the latter, though sprung from pure sources of the understanding, upon experience and its thorough confirmation. Physics cannot altogether refuse and dispense with the testimony of the latter, because with all its certainty it can never, as philosophy, rival mathematics. Both sciences, therefore, stood in need of this inquiry, not for themselves, but for the sake of another science, metaphysics. Metaphysics has to do not only with concepts of nature which always find their application in experience, but also with pure rational concepts which never can be given in any possible experience. Consequently, the objective reality of these concepts, viz. that they are not mere chimeras, and the truth or falsity of metaphysical assertions cannot be discovered or confirmed by any experience. This part of metaphysics, however, is precisely what constitutes its essential end, to which the rest is only a means, and thus this science is in need of such a deduction for its own sake. The third question now proposed relates, therefore, as it were, to the root and essential differences of metaphysics, i.e. the occupation of reason with itself, and the supposed knowledge of objects arising immediately from this incubation of its own concepts, without requiring or indeed being able to reach that knowledge through experience. Without solving this problem, reason never is justified. The empirical use to which reason limits the pure understanding does not fully satisfy the proper destination of the latter. Every single experience is only a part of the whole sphere of its domain, but the absolute totality of all possible experience is itself not experience. Yet it is a necessary concrete problem for reason, the mere representation of which requires concepts quite different from the categories whose use is only eminent or refers to experience so far as it can be given. Whereas the concepts of reason aim at the completeness, i.e. the collective unity of all possible experience, and thereby transcend every given experience, thus they become transcendent. As the understanding stands in need of categories for experience, reason contains in itself the source of ideas, by which I mean necessary concepts whose object cannot be given in any experience. The latter are inherent in the nature of reason as the former are in that of the understanding. While the former carry with them an illusion likely to mislead, the illusion of the latter is inevitable, though it certainly can be kept from misleading us. Since all illusion consists in holding the subjective ground of our judgments to be objective, a self-knowledge of pure reason in its transcendent, exaggerated use is the sole preservative 
from the aberrations into which reason falls when it mistakes its destination and refers that to the object transcendently which only regards its own subject and its guidance in all eminent use 41 the distinction of ideas that is of pure concepts of reason from categories or pure concepts of the understanding as cognitions of the quite distinct species origin and use is so important a point in founding a science which is to contain the system of all these a priori cognitions that without this distinction metaphysics is absolutely impossible or is at best a random bungling attempt to build a castle in the air without a knowledge of the materials or of their fitness for any purpose had the critic of pure reason done nothing but first point out this distinction it had thereby contributed more to clear up our conception of and to guide our inquiry in the field of metaphysics than all the vain efforts which have hitherto been made to satisfy the transcendent problems of pure reason without ever surmising that we were in quite another field than that of the understanding and hence classing concepts of the understanding and those of reason together as if they were of the same kind all pure cognitions of the understanding have this feature that their concepts present themselves in experience and their principles can be confirmed by it whereas the transcendent cognitions of reason cannot either as ideas appear in experience or as propositions ever be confirmed or refuted by it hence whatever errors may sleep in unawares can only be discovered by pure reason itself a discovery of much difficulty because this very reason naturally becomes dialectical by means of its ideas and this unavoidable illusion cannot be limited by any objective and dogmatical researchers into things but by a subjective investigation of reason itself as a source of ideas in the critic of pure reason it was always my greatest care to endeavor not only carefully to distinguish the several species of cognition but to derive concepts belonging to each one of them from their common source i did this in order that by knowing whence they originated i might determine their use with safety and also have the unanticipated but invaluable advantage of knowing the completeness of my enumeration classification and a specification of concepts a priori and therefore according to principles without this metaphysics is mere rhapsody in which no one knows whether he has enough or whether and where something is still wanting we can indeed have this advantage only in pure philosophy but of this philosophy it constitutes the very essence as i had found the origin of the categories in the four logical functions of all the judgments of the understanding it was quite natural to seek the origin of the ideas in the three functions of the syllogisms of reason for as soon as these pure concepts of reason the transcendental ideas are given they could hardly except they be held innate be found anywhere else than in the same activity of reason which so far as it regards mere form constitutes the logical element of the syllogism of reason but so far as it represents judgments of the understanding with respect to the one or the other form a priori constitutes transcendental concepts of pure reason 
The formal distinction of syllogism renders their division into categorical, hypothetical, and disjunctive necessary. The concepts of reason founded on them contained, therefore, first the idea of the complete subject, the substantial, secondly the idea of the complete series of conditions, thirdly the determination of all concepts in the idea of a complete complex of that which is possible. The first idea is psychological, the second cosmological, the third theological, and as all three are given occasion to dialectics, yet each in its own way, the division of the whole dialects of pure reason into its paralogism, its antinomy, and its ideal was arranged accordingly. Through this deduction we may feel assured that all the claims of pure reason are completely represented and that none can be wanting, because the faculty of reason itself, whence they all take their origin, is thereby completely surveyed. In these general considerations, it is also remarkable that the ideas of reason are unlike the categories, of no service to the use of understanding in experience, but quite dispensable, and become even an impediment to the maxims of a rational cognition of nature. Yet in another respect, still to be determined, they are necessary. Whether the soul is or is not a simple substance, is of no consequence to us in the explanation of its phenomena, for we cannot render the notion of a simple being intelligible by any possible experience that is sensuous or concrete. The notion is therefore quite void as regards all hoped-for insights into the cause of phenomena, and cannot at all serve as a principle of the explanation of that which internal or external experience supplies. So the cosmological ideas of the beginning of the world, or of its eternity, aparte cannot be of any greater service to us for the explanation of any event in the world itself. And finally we must, according to a right maxim of the philosophy of nature, refrain from all explanations of the design of nature, drawn from the will of a supreme being, because this would not be natural philosophy, but an acknowledgment that we have come to the end of it. The use of these ideas, therefore, is quite different from that of those categories by which, and by the principle built upon which, experience itself first becomes possible. But our laborious analytics of the understanding would be superfluous if we had nothing else in view than the mere cognition of nature as it can be given in experience. For reason does its work both in mathematics and in the science of nature quite safely and well without any of this subtle deduction. Therefore our critic of the understanding combines with the ideas of pure reason for a purpose which lies beyond the empirical use of the understanding. But this we have above declared to be in this aspect totally inadmissible, and without any object or meaning. Yet there must be a harmony between that of the nature of reason and that of the understanding, and the former must contribute to the perfection of the latter, and cannot possibly upset it. The solution of this question is as follows. Pure reason does not in its ideas point to particular objects which lie beyond the field of experience, but only requires completeness of the use of the understanding in the system of experience. 
But this completeness can be a completeness of principles only, not of intuitions, i.e. concrete outsides or arshangam, and of objects. In order, however, to represent the ideas definitely, reason conceives them after the fashion of the cognition of the object. The cognition is, as far as these rules are concerned, completely determined. But the object is only an idea invented for the purpose of bringing the cognition of the understanding as near as possible to the completeness represented by that idea. Prefatory Remark to the Dialectics of Pure Reason 45 we have above shown in number 33 and 34 that the purity of the categories from all admixture of sensuous determinations may mislead reason into extending their use quite beyond all experience to things in themselves though as these categories themselves find no intuition which can give them meaning or sense in concreto they as mere logical functions can represent a thing in general but not give by themselves alone a determinate concept of anything such hyperbolical objects are distinguished by the appellation of nomina or pure beings of the understanding or better beings of thought such as for example substance but conceived without permanence in time or cause but not acting in time etc here predicates that only serve to make the conformity to law of experience possible are applied to these concepts and yet they are deprived of all the conditions of intuition on which alone experience is possible and so these concepts lose all significance there is no danger however of the understanding spontaneously making an excursion so very wantonly beyond its own bounds into the field of the mere creatures of thought without being impelled by foreign laws but when reason which cannot be fully satisfied with any empirical use of the rules of the understanding as being always conditioned requires a completion of this chain of conditions then the understanding is forced out of its sphere and then it partly represents objects of experience in a series so extended that no experience can grasp. Partly even, with a view to complete the series, it seeks entirely beyond its nomina to which it can attach that chain and so having at last escaped from the conditions of experience, make its attitude as it were final. These are then the transcendental ideas which, though according to the true but hidden ends of the natural determination of our reason, they may aim not at extravagant concepts, but at an unbounded extension of their empirical use, yet seduce the understanding by an unavoidable illusion through a transcendent use, which, though deceitful, cannot be restrained within the bounds of experience by any resolution but only by scientific instruction and with much difficulty. 1. The Psychological Idea People have long since observed that in all substances the proper subject, that which remains after all the accidents as predicates, are abstracted, consequently that which forms the substance of things remains unknown, and various complaints have been made concerning these limits to our knowledge. But it will be well to consider 
that the human understanding is not to be blamed for its inability to know the substance of things, that is, to determine it by itself, but rather for requiring to recognize it, which is a mere idea, definitely as though it were a given object. Pure reason requires us to seek for every predicate of a thing its proper subject, and for this subject, which is itself necessarily nothing but a predicate, its subject, and so on indefinitely, or as far as we can reach. But hence it follows that we must not hold anything at which we can arrive to be an ultimate subject, and that substance itself never can be thought by our understanding, however deep we may penetrate, even if all nature were unveiled to us. For the specific nature of our understanding consists in thinking everything discursively, that is, representing it by concepts, and so by mere predicates, to which, therefore, the absolute subject must always be wanting. Hence all the real properties by which we recognize bodies are mere accidents, not accepting impenetrability, which we can only represent to ourselves as the effect of a power of which the subject is unknown to us. Now we appear to have this substance in the consciousness of ourselves, in the thinking subject, and indeed in an immediate intuition, for all the predicates of an internal sense refer to the ego as a subject, and I cannot conceive myself as the predicate of any other subject. Hence completeness in the reference of the given concepts as predicates to a subject, not merely an idea but an object, that is the absolute subject itself seems to be given in experience. But this expectation is disappointed, for the ego is not a concept, but only the indication of the object of the internal sense, so far as we recognize it by no further predicate. Consequently, it cannot be in itself a predicate of any other thing, but just as little can it be a determinate concept of an absolute subject, but is, as in all other cases, only the reference of the internal phenomena to their unknown subject. Yet this idea, which serves very well as a regulative principle, totally to destroy all materialistic explanations of the internal phenomena of the soul, occasions by a very natural misunderstanding a very specious argument, which from this supposed cognition of the substance of our thinking being, infers this nature so far as the knowledge of it falls quite without the complex of experience. But now we may call this thinking self, the soul substance, as being the ultimate subject of thinking which cannot be further represented as the predicate of another thing, it remains quite empty and without significance. If permanence, the quality which renders the concept of substances in experience fruitful, cannot be proved of it. But permanence can never be proved of the concept of a substance as a thing in itself, but for the purposes of experience only. This is sufficiently shown by the first analogy of experience, and whoever will not yield to the proof may try for himself whether he can succeed in proving from the concept of a subject which does not exist itself as the predicate of another thing, that its existence is thoroughly permanent and that it cannot either in itself or by any natural cause originate or be annihilated. These synthetical a priori propositions can never be proved in themselves, but only in reference to things as objects of possible experience. 
If, therefore, from the concept of the soul as a substance, we would infer its permanence, this can hold good as regards possible experience only, not of the soul as a thing in itself and beyond all possible experience. But life is the subjective condition of all our possible experience, consequently we can only infer the permanence of the soul in life, for the death of man is the end of all experience which concerns the soul as an object of experience, except the contrary be proved, which is the very question in hand. The permanence of the soul can therefore only be proved, and no one cares for that, during the life of man, but not, as we desire to do, after death. And for this general reason, that the concept of substance, so far as it is to be considered necessarily combined with the concept of permanence, can be so combined only according to the principles of possible experience, and therefore for the purposes of experience only. That there is something real without us, which not only corresponds but must correspond to our external perceptions, can likewise be proved to be not a connection of things in themselves but for the sake of experience. This means that there is something empirical, i.e. some phenomenon in space without us, that admits of a satisfactory proof, for we have nothing to do with other objects than those which belong to possible experience. Because objects which cannot be given us in any experience do not exist for us. Empirically without me is that which appears in a space, and a space together with all the phenomena which it contains belongs to the representations, whose connection, according to laws of experience, proves their objective truth, just as the connection of the phenomena of the internal sense proves the actuality of my soul as an object of the internal sense. By means of external experience, I am conscious of the actuality of bodies as external phenomena in a space in the same manner as by means of the internal experience, I am conscious of the existence of my soul in time. But this soul is only cognized as an object of the internal sense by phenomena that constitute an internal state and of which the essence in itself, which forms the basis of these phenomena, is unknown. Cartesian idealism, therefore, does nothing but distinguish external experience from dreaming. And the conformity to law, as a criterion of its truth, of the former, from the irregularity and the false illusion of the latter, in both, it presupposes space and time as conditions of the existence of objects, and it only requires whether the objects of the external senses, which we, when awake, put in space, are as actually to be found in it as the object of the internal sense, the soul, is in time. That is, whether experience carries with it sure criteria to distinguish it from imagination. This doubt, however, may be easily disposed of, and we always do so in common life by investigating the connection of phenomena in both space and time, according to universal laws of experience. And we cannot doubt, when the representation of external things throughout agrees therewith, that they constitute truthful experience. 
material idealism in which phenomena are considered as such only according to their connection in experience may accordingly be very easily refuted and it is just as sure an experience that bodies exist without us in space as that i myself exist according to the representation of the internal sense in time for the notion without us only signifies existence in space however as the ego in the proposition i am means not only the object of internal intuition in time but the subject of consciousness just as body means not only external intuition in space but the thing in itself which is the basis of this phenomenon as this is the case the question whether bodies as phenomena of the external sense exist as bodies apart from my thoughts may without any hesitation be denied in nature but the question whether i myself as a phenomenon of the internal sense the soul according to empirical psychology exists apart from my faculty of representation in time is an exactly similar inquiry and must likewise be answered in the negative and in this manner everything when it is reduced to its true meaning is decided and certain the formal which i have also called transcendental actually abolishes the material or cartesian idealism for if a space be nothing but a form of my sensibility it is as a representation in me just as actual as i myself am and nothing but the empirical truth of the representations in it remains for consideration but if this is not the case if a space and the phenomena in it are something existing without us then all the criteria of experience beyond our perception can never prove the actuality of these objects without us end of section six